What is the greatest joy that a human being can experience? What is the ultimate satisfaction? How would you answer that question? Our world is certainly filled with pleasures to enjoy. There's food, there's family, there's friends, even furry friends. There's sunny days and there's starry nights. There's lakes and rivers and oceans and mountains and forests and fertile fields to drink in and to enjoy and celebrate. There's sports and there's hunting. Well, sports is kind of depressing usually around these parts, but it's there. It's fun. Some are in mourning after last night and some will be in mourning later today, I'm sure. But, uh, but this is part of what we love. With that, there's theater and art and concerts and parades and festivals. So much to enjoy. So much pleasure in this world. But the greatest of all joys in this waking world is to commune in the presence of the living God. The greatest of all joys in this waking world is to commune in the presence of the living God. All of these other joys are but a reflection of the depth and the wonder of His being and our relationship to Him. To know that God has chosen you as His child. To know that God walks with you. To commune with Him. This is life's ultimate joy. In the language of Scripture, our soul's ultimate hope and satisfaction is in God's promise. I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. In one sense, the entire Bible is aiming at that goal. To bring about that goal. The Christian life is learning to believe this truth and to experience it in our daily lives. Adam and Eve, this was their ultimate joy. It wasn't in getting their way. It wasn't in accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish. It wasn't in possessing great riches. It wasn't even enjoying nature, and pristine nature at that, or even in one another. Adam and Eve's ultimate joy, with all of these lesser derivative joys, their ultimate joy before the fall was to commune in the presence of the living God. That was it. It is for this that we were made. And all of redemptive history is geared to bringing the physical world and God's people back to that experience. In the book of Leviticus, it has been abundantly clear, however, that communing with the living God, the holy God, in His presence, is no simple undertaking for sinners. It's not just a given. We have this sin that blocks us from God's presence. And as God's presence descends then from Mount Sinai in Exodus 40, as He descends to dwell in the midst of Israel's tenting tribes, the tabernacle becomes a beachhead of holiness. This is the restoration project. It has begun here in this spot as God comes to dwell among His people. Leviticus chapters 1-16 through then reveal the complicated way that sinners may actually enter into the presence of God here at this place, this beachhead of holiness. 
It is through sacrifice. It is through one dying in our place. It is through priesthood, one representing us before God. It is through all of this purification ritual that permits us to come in to that place that is our ultimate joy. The good news in chapter 9 is that the fire of God falls upon the sacrifices that are burning there and indicating then that God has received this way in through sacrifice. The bad news comes in chapter 10 where God's fire falls again, but this time on the priests Nadab and Abihu falls in judgment because they've approached God on their own terms, not on His terms. And so what we see next in the book, remembering this this graphic, what we see next in the book is it works its way up to the pinnacle of the Day of Atonement, this being sort of the mountain peak of the mountain of of the Pentateuch. There is this discussion then of purity, and I think it follows very hard upon the death of Nadab and Abihu as we continue to approach God at the tabernacle. There is this long conversation of purity laws and rituals which continue to remind the Israelites of the difficulty, in a sense, of approaching God, but of the possibility that a sinner may, through ritual cleanness and through holiness in that approach to the Lord. We come then to the pinnacle day of atonement and remembering there the blood that was brought into the inner sanctum. And it's as if here then the tabernacle itself is cleansed. It is purified of the defilement of sinners. Remember, it's not only the sinner who is in danger in the presence of God, but God who is in danger with the presence of sinners. That he would be tainted and seen to be unholy. Or profane. And so the temple is, the tabernacle is cleansed here. And then in the other direction, as the scapegoat is sent out eastward, the atonement coming westward, and in a sense then the tabernacle flushed of all sin and impurity on this one day of the year as the high priest makes atonement behind the veil and the scapegoat is sent away. The one burned at the altar, the other with the sins of the people sent as far as the east is from the west. And the tabernacle is cleansed. We enter then into chapters 17 through 20. And in a sense now, we're moving away from the tabernacle. We're moving away, ultimately, from Mount Sinai, as numbers will take us away from there, and Deuteronomy positioning the people of Israel at the precipice of the new land entering into the new land. But notice there the emphasis again then on purity. There is purity in approach to the tabernacle. That's a major issue, chapters 11 through 15. It all hits us as a bit weird. But in all of it, we see what God is teaching us about the necessity of entering His presence on His terms as cleansed people. Now, as we come to chapter 17 through 20, there is a parallel emphasis moving away from the tabernacle. Again, an emphasis upon purity and holiness. So as we're tracking with the whole message of Leviticus, we've emphasized this beginning last week with chapter 17, that holiness is encountered at the tabernacle as we stand in the presence of God. But the holiness of God encountered there is to travel home with the Israelites. It's to travel with them. It's to reverberate into every aspect of their daily lives. 
So chapters 1 through 16 emphasizing on emphasizing the approach to God. Chapter 17 through 27 emphasizing the walk with God in social holiness. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Seeing this theme throughout all of Scripture, Leviticus is utterly essential to understanding what God is doing in this program. But as we understand Leviticus and place this verse within the context of the book itself, I will walk among you and be your God indicates to us in some sense that the presence of God actually leaves the tabernacle. It has been on Mount Sinai and the people have done nothing but fear. Moses, you can go up there and represent us. We don't want to have anything to do with this. But that presence has come down now into this tabernacle and God invites His people to meet Him there. As they do, and as we come hard upon the Day of Atonement, now this presence is said to go with them. Not only do we come to the presence and the holiness of God at the tabernacle, but His presence and holiness goes with us into everyday life. And we need say no more to understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of every moment. He is Lord of every inch of our lives. We are not here at church to leave the holiness behind. Just as Israel did not come to the tabernacle to let the holiness stay. But in fact, the presence of God leaves. And now as we work on chapter 17 through 27, we will see that holiness leaving, affecting God's people, reverberating through their lives. Another way of saying this is that worshiping in the presence of the holy God sanctifies His people. It shows up in every aspect of their daily lives. It's dwelling in, fellowshipping in, rejoicing in the presence of God that changes us, that sanctifies us. Those who commune in the presence of a holy God live holy lives in reflection of His character. This is fairly simple for us as a church, as this church, I think, would understand that. It would be fairly clear to us. But let's, again, put down a stake into this truth. Those who commune in the presence of a holy God live holy lives in reflection of His character. That's how it works. That's what happens as we approach Him on His terms and follow through in faithfulness as He directs us. We're changed by His presence. We notice this first, again, as it moves so consistently, starting with worship, now here in daily life, in verses 1 through 10. Holiness and worship. We read in verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Fellowship in the presence of the holy God transforms the way people live their lives. 
God's plan is not for us to merely comprehend His holiness, but to emulate it and to display it. Verse 3, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Starting with pretty simple ABCs of the Ten Commandments. And all of the Ten Commandments will be referenced in one way or another throughout the chapter. But it starts here with revering father and mother, revering God by keeping His Sabbaths. People who fellowship in God's presence reflect His holiness by respecting their parents. This is one evidence of holiness. And it's a distinctive quality in this world. Children, you who are living at home with your mom and dad, you're living with a parent, if you do not honor your parents, what does this teach us? If you don't honor your parents, if you disobey them, if you try to deceive them, if you think they're stupid, if you can't stand being around them, the problem is holiness. The problem is your walk in the presence of God. Now, it's not that they're always right. It's not that they're perfect. But the greatest problem that you should begin to see is that I need to know God. That's why I don't revere my parents. Holiness shows itself in revering father and mother. It shows itself in keeping the Sabbaths. Much more to be developed in this book, as much will lean this way. But it speaks here initially of holy time. It's been referenced earlier in the book, but this seventh day, a time in which Israel would stop her work so as to commune uniquely with God at the tabernacle here in this early stage. Those Sabbaths need to be kept, not only the weekly, but also the annual Sabbaths need to be kept, that God would be contemplated. This discipline that we have here today of showing up at this place, and the disciplines that we have of showing up at other times to contemplate God's Word, to talk about it, to pray to God together as a community, this is intended to be sanctifying. It's meant to purify, to make us holy as we stand in the presence of God and stop our normal daily routine to consider His truth. This sanctifies, if rightly received. Verse 4, he continues, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Again, fairly clear as it reflects the Ten Commandments. God is spirit and has no form or likeness that we are able to sufficiently or even accurately depict. And whenever we try, we're tempted to revere the image that we've created rather than to revere the Creator. So this is something unique in the Christian faith, in the Judeo-Christian heritage. There's no images of God. There's no pictures of God. Some are attempted, I realize. But there's, there's nothing there that helps us to know God by creating some image. God indeed sees great danger in this. So holy people do not cast images and they don't put idols up in their homes. What might we put up in our homes? You perhaps have on your wall somewhere hanging a verse of Scripture, the words of the Lord, or on a door in your house. But we do not put up idols. We don't find images of God. Again, there are some in Scripture that describe Him and the like, but we are not to make images, and we don't as God's people. 
Verse 5, when you offer sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. He will be disciplined as appropriate before the Lord. Remember, peace offerings were eaten in fellowship with families, with the priest, and God was celebrated there. The law here is to indicate that sacrificial meat cannot be kept past its allotted time. There are probably health reasons for that, but probably also it emphasized the sacredness of the sacrificial meal. This meat was not going to hang around long enough to forget why it was offered. And so it is holy, and you're to remember it that way. Not simply to, as you live out holiness in your life, not simply to act as is prudent, but to act uniquely towards such sacrifices. Verse 9, here's holiness at work in daily life. Here's holiness going away from the tabernacle into people's lives. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It indicates that holy people work hard. Holy people are generous with the resources they obtain through their hard work. And all people are a bit forgetful at times. You've probably mowed the grass somewhere along the line and missed a strip. Or you were harvesting something in the garden and you saw that you missed a couple of beans or the like. And so with their grape vines, they, there's a cluster that was hidden under the leaves. I didn't see that. Rather than go back to it, you leave it there. You purposefully don't go right to the absolute edge of your field as you are harvesting the grain. You leave some of it there. Why? That those who are needy might come into your field, might come into your vineyard and go through and finish up that they might be fed. You have land. They don't. So you think about them in their weakness and you compensate for them in this way. We notice how beautiful this is, the poor work to earn the contributions of the land owner. It's not simply given over with no work. I can't help but remember the pastor in this area that was talking to me. We share all these war stories about those who ask for resources, and uh, some are really bad people, and some are good people. And it's sometimes difficult to figure out one or the other. But he told me about this guy that called and said he needed food. They had some food there at this church. The guy came and he sat out in the parking lot honking the horn for the pastor to come and hand it to him at the door. He didn't even want to get out of the car to receive the help. Uh, there was no such attitude in Israel. Uh, they're, they're, those who were poor went into the fields and they earned their living that way. If you did not work, you did not eat. Now, we go both directions here, don't we? There is to be dignity on the part of those who are weak and who are poor, helping them 
meeting their need with compassion, demonstrating grace to them, but doing so with genuine integrity that they are contributing to their own life and work. It's a beautiful relationship and it's not one that works. Uh, The poor of our day, the rich of our day in this suburb wouldn't even know what to do with the extra gleanings. We wouldn't know, well, some people might, but uh, what would you do? How would you deal with this grain? We wouldn't even know what to do. So it's a different world, but the concepts are there. We care for the poor. Holy people are generous people. They work hard, but they use their work to be a benefit to others. When you commune in the presence of a holy God, you reflect His character by becoming generous and by watching out for others. Now this whole chapter really comes across as virtual bullet points, and it's difficult to group it and not probably necessary. But as we do, if we would group it, because of this repeating phrase, I am the Lord, this is the point. And so we may come to something of a different emphasis here at verse 11 upon holiness in its relationship with neighbors. And we've already discussed that with the poor here. But continuing on, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. Verse 11, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. To profane God's name is to cheapen it, to make it look common and unholy. You will not do this. You will speak truthfully. You will deal truthfully. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Holiness translates into everyday life as a refusal to take advantage of vulnerable people. If we're growing in holiness, we're growing in the likeness of the Lord, we will not take advantage of vulnerable people. This will be weeded out of our life. Common laborers needed to receive daily wages in order to eat. They would work that day, they would take their wages, and they would buy their food that evening for their families. So to withhold that wage would be to send a family to bed hungry. Greedy people have no problem with that. But those who are gracious toward others would not do that. And further, people who commune with the Holy God do not mock, manipulate, or misuse people with physical incapacities. I am the Lord. That is, God dwells with us. He sees how we treat the vulnerable. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Interesting here that holy people do not play favorites for the poor or for the wealthy, either one. But in righteousness judge your neighbor. That is, God is just and His holy people thus treat others Equitably. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. That is, dishonest speech and devious influence can be used to harm others. But holy people who walk in God's presence know that He hears and sees all and they act accordingly. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. What is the opposite of hatred here? 
It's reasoning, frankly, with your neighbor. The assumption is that there will be disagreements. The assumption is that there will be frustrations. When people interact with people, there's trouble. There always will be. But the answer here is not to take this into hatred. You're not to hate your brother in your heart. When it begins to turn into bitterness, it it begins to turn into disregard. We've crossed the line and we're not living a holy life. What it needs to do is come to, verse 17, frank reasoning. People influenced by the holiness of God do not seethe with animosity. They do not think evil thoughts about those with whom they disagree. They speak openly and they speak frankly in love. This is a discipline. It's a challenge. Sometimes it can be very tough to navigate, to either receive or to give. But frank reasoning is holiness. Hatred in the heart is godless. And holy people recognize this. Verse 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Holy people focus on their own interests, but they also turn that same focus on the interests of others. There's an orientation here that we're seeing throughout all of this, and that's that I live out my life thinking about other people. I'm thoughtful about where they are. I'm striving to understand who they are and what the needs are. And I love them as I love myself. Jesus saw this as the second great commandment that sums up the whole purpose of the law. To love others as we love ourselves. What a challenge this is for every one of us. Sinners do not find this comfortable or easy. But as we are influenced by the presence of God, we learn to think about others, little by little, reflecting His holiness as we grow in it. As we come to verse 19, the the bullet points fly more quickly. And we might just speak of holiness in varying aspects of life here. But verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You should not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. It's probably a good place for us to take a quick break and to think about this. As, as a father, I set some rules for the kids, for our family, that were neither permanent nor absolutely necessary. But what might even be seen as infantile rules at times did always reflect my heart for the kids, my desires for them in bigger ways that I knew they would eventually catch. More recently, or in their, uh, as they grew, for instance, no texting or phone use at the dinner table. Now that's an impermanent rule. There's a day when that's not going to be up to me uh, if they do that. That's not all that important of a rule. It's not a moral sin or failure. And so it's, a, it's this rule, and it can maybe be a hard rule at times for kids, but why is it there? This impermanent, temporary, 
unnecessary rule is there because of the larger interests of the love of a family and the communion of that family together at what is one of the more ideal times, the time of dinner. As we read through these laws, God operates in the Old Covenant along somewhat similar lines. Many of these rules are temporary. They never were intended to be permanent. They're not necessary, ultimately. They're not morally grounded. Now, some are. And some pass directly to us that way. But there's others such as this that are meant to simply illustrate as an example. And I don't know that my example with my, my uh, rule is necessarily the greatest example. But you could probably fill in some better ones. Where there's rules in the family that are just there for now. And they're meant to say something. What's this meant to say? You can't have a mule. If you mix seed in the field, you've done something evil. If your clothes have polyester and cotton, you're disobeying God. Clearly not. No more than if my 35-year-old child someday is texting at the dinner table when they come to see me in the nursing home. What God is teaching here, it seems, is that holiness is separateness. Holiness separates us all the time from this world. It separates the way we think. It separates who we are. It is illustrated then even in what you wear in your clothing for the Israelites. This is so similar to bodily fluids. Should we get back into that discussion of earlier chapters? It's just something you couldn't get away from it. It was always there. The consideration of God's law, the consideration of what holiness is, that it doesn't mix light and darkness is the ultimate point. God isn't worried about mixed materials and clothing. He's worried about light and darkness. About the unclean and the clean morally. Mixing together. And so he illustrates this for his children this way. Not permanent, but illustrative. And it's a good example of the temporary and limited nature of the Old Covenant. Verse 20 changes in a very different direction. And here again, we're very separated from it other than the major principle. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man, that probably means betrothed to him. little different than engaged. A little bit more significant. It's considered marriage. It takes divorce to break the betrothal, but probably what it means. And she's not yet, however, ransomed or given her freedom. A distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death, which would be the case if it was another form of adultery, because she was not free. This seems to be demonstrating compassion for this slave girl who had probably utterly no capacity to resist. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. Really? When we hardly ever eat meat? This kind of expense? 
for a woman like this who means nothing? Yes, because she means something to God. And the priest, verse 22, shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. What you did to a slave girl was your business in the ancient world. Holiness goes right through the tent of the believer and God says, it's my business. This is sin and reparations must be made. Now, we don't understand all of the nuances of the history, the culture, and all that was involved here. They would have probably picked it up quite quickly. Even verse 21, the word compensation is never found again in the Bible. So it's really difficult for us to judge off of other passages all that's going on here. But it seems that payment must be made to the husband of this woman, the one betrothed to her once she gains her freedom, the one who would marry her. And all of the implications miss us. What does not miss us is God is very concerned about what goes on behind closed doors. And there's no aspect of our life and there's no individual out there who is so unimportant that God doesn't notice. Because for him, she is just as important as you are. And we cannot understand the status of a slave girl. She was nothing. She was a breathing tool to be used however you chose. But God says, not with my people. Not with my people. This won't happen. Verse 23, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food. Then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Again, just an illustration to them that everything belonged to the Lord. And trees were a source of tremendous pleasure and importance in Israel. The olive, the fig, the date, these were looked forward to all year when the harvest would come. But this initial harvest given to the Lord in consecration to Him. Verses 26 through 28 pertain to nebulous rituals probably associated with pagan worship. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not enter in interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourself. I am the Lord. This passage is not teaching that getting a tattoo is sin any more than it requires believers to never allow a haircut to trim their sideburns. Cutting your body to punish yourself is foolish. It's self-pitying. It's disobedience to God. It's a failure of stewardship of the body that He's given you. It's not something to ever do. 
but not because of this passage. That's not what this is about. Getting a tattoo, I'd advise against it for many reasons, but this passage would not be one of those reasons. It might put us into the mind of God on some level, but let's be very cautious here. Again, no tattoos as long as you never trim the edges of your beard, whatever that exactly is. They'll go to New York City and you'll get a pretty good idea of it. I mean, they hang down to their waist. So if you want to go with that, then just be consistent. These laws were provisional. Again, I'd argue against cutting on very serious moral grounds. I'd argue against tattoos with a bit more of a smile on my face, but say, you think real hard about that. There's more implications than you might realize when you're 21. But these provisions are issued in the context of pagan rituals, a context we can't fully reconstruct. God's people are to be devoted to Him is the point and to him alone, and are thus not to participate in pagan rituals, a theme that likely continues in verse 29. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. They probably go a bit together. That is, she is sold, your daughter sold into shrine prostitution at a pagan cult, or at a pagan high place, but you are to observe the Sabbaths of the Lord and to be devoted wholly to Him. Why would someone sell a daughter this way? Because you're hungry? Because you're mad? Because you have the power to do so and profit? It's horrific. And it's horrific abuse when we consider what she suffers in this. You're not going to do that. Because I'm a holy God, says the Lord to his people. Commune with me. Don't sell your daughter into prostitution to commune with a false God. Her and those who would use her so. You're holy people. Verse 31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Don't go to somebody who contacts the spirits of the dead to tell you something you want to know. Don't go there. Holy people don't do that. Verse 32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. I was thinking you'd all be standing up right now. <laughs> it's, it, of course, just a sign of reverence. Stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man. The point is, this is also someone who is vulnerable on some level, should be respected and honored. That's how holy people will respond, not tease them for their gray hair or for how little of it is left or something like that in a nasty way. Have all the fun you want with my hair anytime you want. I love it. But when it gets serious... As a culture, we're breaking this law all the time. We don't revere older people. And older people don't seem much to care as long as they have the money they want and can go where they want and do what they want and let everybody mock while we spend money and live for ourselves. We have a really messed up view of age in this world, in this culture. Holy people think differently about age. 
They revere the experience. They revere the fact that God has allowed this person to live. They seek their wisdom. They honor them. They seek to protect them. And holy people of age give themselves away to bless others. That's what holiness steers us to do. Verse 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remember your history. Remember what I've done. Treat strangers that way. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hin, measurements. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. God must determine who we are in daily life. Now, one truth made abundantly clear throughout this series, a truth made crystal clear here in this chapter on holiness, is that we serve not only a holy God, but we serve an invasive God. He's not a God you store in a box, you take Him out to play once in a while, and then you put Him back in the box and store Him back in the closet. That's not who God is. He is Lord of every inch of the universe at all times. And there is no area of our lives where the holiness of God may be dismissed. None. That's been made abundantly clear throughout this book. As one commentator puts it, holiness is a regulative principle of life. In other words, the moral purity and the beauty of God is to influence every aspect of how we live those who commune in the presence of this holy God, those who read the Word of God faithfully, those who pray to Him with consistency, those who seek His face in the counsel of others, those who meet Him in the church and word and sacrament, who seek God every day, those who commune with Him live distinctive lives in moral purity and beauty. This is the natural outcome or the supernatural outcome. God's holy people are wholly devoted to Him. They worship at no other shrine and everyone around them knows it. They are generous with their wealth. They are honest. They are kind and thoughtful. They are respectful of the infirm and of those with physical challenges, as well as deferential and generous with visitors and strangers and the elderly. They are fair and they are impartial, refusing to favor Someone because he's wealthy or someone because they are poor. They are just. Holy people do not hold a grudge. They are not vengeful. They do not hate. But they seek to resolve. They spend money. They treat employees. And they do business with integrity. This is holiness invading every corner of our lives. And as chapter 18 would indicate 18 through 20 really going together they also live sexually pure lives now the false interpretation we must avoid and that's that this then is a call for me to be a good person and if i be a better person i'll more please god with my labors 
Well, there is one sense where holiness is absolutely essential to pleasing God. Hebrews 12.14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's not a suggestion. It's His call. It's His command. You cannot enter His presence without it. You cannot leave His presence without it. You will not abide in His presence in eternity without holiness. Without holiness, no one will see God. But the idea, the dangerous idea that can come right here is that I seek holiness through my own effort and my own righteousness. I strive to be a better person and live like this beauty that's been laid out before us today. That's a wrong idea. Holiness is never self-generated. The way the book of Leviticus is even structured, the narrow lanes it carves out for us to walk, is leading us to Christ as our righteousness. It teaches us that holiness results from communing with God. In other words, God is the source of your holiness, not you. That forgiveness of sin is utterly necessary on the basis of His merits and what He has accomplished. So that communing in His presence, the holiness flows, but it flows from Him to us. Not we get it figured out and then send it on to Him as a gift. It is a gift, but it's a gift of celebration for what He has done to give us a holy life through Christ. This book and this chapter in particular teach us that holiness is not a private pursuit. It's not a monastic enterprise in which we renounce relationships. Holiness is to be lived out in the gritty affair of daily life. It's to illumine all of our affairs with God's renown and glory. And we then need to know this. Life's ultimate joy is dwelling in God's presence. We'll struggle all our lives to believe that in the face of the allure of world's idols. We need to see, however, God's redemptive agenda to bring us to know that communion in His presence is the source of our heart's joy. And what we need to do is to see Jesus. You want to know what Leviticus 19 is all about? It's the face of Christ. It's the face of Christ. Commune with Him. And by His grace, that face will be reflected. All of us then need to pause here and repent. We're not the holy people that we should be. We don't commune in the presence of a holy God the way that we should. But by His grace, let's turn from sin here and seek our soul's ultimate joy, dwelling in His presence, in His holiness. Let's pray. And I invite you to stand with me, if you will. We're going to extend this service a bit. If you need to leave, uh, you certainly are free to do so. But we do have a few matters that we need to uh, discuss here. So just we'll stand together here and seek the Lord just briefly. Lord, we ask that you would produce within our lives a holiness and a faithfulness. I pray, dear God, that you would teach us to see your face and to live in its light. Bring to saving faith those who know not Christ. And may we be faithful in our time here together as we finish out this service, as we live out our life together as an assembly.
as we live every day of our lives, may we do so for the glory of your name. We give you thanks for your holiness, though we do not even fully comprehend it. We praise you for it and praise you that we can be challenged this day. And I pray that prayers of repentance and prayers seeking grace would ascend now to your throne and that you would hear our cry. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.